I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is Money in Politics. You know, when we first developed Call Time AI, we did so in large part because we felt there were just too many barriers to this crucial threshold issue of fundraising. I had seen firsthand how critical it was to have dollars in the door of your campaign and to have those dollars in as early as possible. It was used as a tool to evaluate the seriousness and viability of the campaign. And that is a critical tool and a critical way that campaigns communicate to the outside world how they're doing, the progress that they're making, and how seriously you should take them. But unfortunately, I also know and I have seen that if you're running as a non-traditional candidate, if you don't fit what has historically been the traditional profile of a candidate, which, by the way, has largely been an older, straight, white male, you face challenges in quickly tapping into your network financially and then also growing that network rapidly enough to be taken seriously by all of the different institutions and power centers that often campaigns rely upon to eventually get the resources they need and communicate widely enough to get the vote out. So that's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by and really love the work of organizations like Emerge America. They are doing such phenomenal work and have been for some time to really change the landscape, the political landscape, to make it so that this issue of fundraising, but beyond fundraising, the barriers that stand in the way of non-traditional candidates are broken down. And in particular, Emerge America is focused on women candidates. This is right from their website. Emerge is changing the face of politics to create an inclusive democracy. We are the nation's premier organization that recruits, trains, and provides a powerful network to Democratic women who want to run for office. We inspire women to run. We hone their skills to win. So that is why I was so excited to be able to sit down and speak with Amanda Renteria. I could hardly ask for someone who knows this topic better. Amanda has spent a life in public service, and that includes making two runs for public office of her own. And she now serves as a senior advisor to Emerge America. Money in Politics is brought to you by Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy to use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring. So you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. It's really great to be chatting with you. If maybe as just a starting point, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself. You have a pretty phenomenal background, and I would love for people to know about it if you just kind of want to walk us through some of the, the highlights there that have led you to the work that you do today. So I like to call myself a career public servant. I've been in, in it for about 20 plus years and just have had some incredible opportunities as a senior advisor of Emerge, Cal, uh, Emerge America that trains Democratic women to run for office, the chief of operations for California's Department of Justice under Attorney General Becerra, a uh, national political director for the 2016 presidential campaign for Hillary Clinton. And, um, and then a chief of staff in the United States Senate, where I worked for about almost a decade there. But I do like to say I started off as a um, public school teacher back in my hometown, where I really fell in love with public service, with government, 
and what it's supposed to do for all its people. That's great. And can you talk a little bit about how some of those experiences have informed the role that you have now as senior advisor to Emerge America? Yeah, you know, when you've worked at almost every level of government now, not only in the classroom, which I consider on the very front lines, but, you know, in local and state and federal, you kind of see the ways the system in total is supposed to work and how all the different layers really add to itself. And then why, most importantly, why you need smart, effective, caring, and passionate public servants who are leading these institutions, not only to build trust, but to understand the people it serves. And in addition to that history of public service in all of those roles, you've also yourself been a candidate, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what were those experiences like? I have to imagine they also inform the way you think about coaching and mentoring and supporting candidates today. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like being in the ring yourself (laughs) and feeling what it's like, whether it's, you know, negative attacks or how am I going to make sure I raise enough money or what is my message and how am I responding to the things that are coming at me on a day-to-day basis when you're in a campaign? You know, for me, I always feel like anyone running needs to understand at the core of why they're running. What is it that makes them passionate? Why are they stepping forward and putting themselves out there? And, you know, I think along the way in running for office, not only have I learned the difficulty of raising money, but really the obstacles that women and women of color particularly face at a higher level in order to run for office and win. And so all throughout my career and my process, I've, I've tried to make sure that when the next person does it, it's a little bit easier, whether yeah. you know, you're one of the few women on the Hill or one of the few women to have ever run in a particular district or in a particular school board. And some of those lessons of, okay, even from the outset, knowing it's a little bit more difficult, going in eyes wide open, I think prepares anybody better, whether you just walked in and you didn't know any better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Why is it a little more difficult. I mean, tell us a little bit about from both your perspective as a candidate and also as someone who has worked with people who have run and served, what are the things that make it more difficult for women and women of color to run for office generally and maybe also specifically fundraise the way they need to run successful, viable campaigns? Yeah, some of it is that women are already leaders in their community, but they don't necessarily see themselves ready to run. I even my own story when I first thought about moving back to my hometown to run for Congress. And uh, one of my girlfriends said, uh, you know, Amanda, it's always your quote, if not you, who? Why are you going out to go find somebody to run instead Mm -hmm. of you running? Mm -hmm. And so some of this is about how we see ourselves, women and people of color. When you don't see yourself or you don't see someone like you in these positions of power in politics, you think that's not meant for me. And it's, it's quite subtle. It's not something you see yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, but you just don't notice someone like you there. And so the subtle message is it's not supposed to be you. So some of it is overcoming your own perception of what you should and can be doing. And then some of it is educating other folks to say, I might not look like the last congressman, 
but I still can lead and I've been the leader in this way, or I've, I've led this effort, or I've you know, been able to manage this project. And I think more and more, that's what women are learning. And certainly 2018 was a real lesson in that. A lot of people stepped up to run for the very first time and won. And now we do have a couple of years seeing those women, seeing people of color lead and lead not only in their own authentic way, but really pushing policies so that they do affect more people. So they do bring in more voters, more residents to really be a part of our government public service process. The question of viability, electability and money and fundraising can sometimes be a sort of chicken and egg problem, though, right? You need money in the bank to prove that you're a viable, credible campaign. But being a viable and credible campaign is also something that really helps you raise money. So how do you help candidates and campaigns get over that initial hump and raise the capital that they need to demonstrate to those that they are soliciting that they are serious and that they should get the investment of their dollars in their candidacy? That really does begin with uh, doing it, right? One of the things that Emerge America does in all of our trainings is we actually do have quite a few candidates even raise money for entering the training program, but also while in the training program, having some call time there. Hmm. You know, some of it is getting used to that. You know, Hmm. women saying, invest in me, um, invest in my campaign, learning that at the outset. And then throughout the process on the phone, particularly in making a connection on the phone and bringing a donor along, it is talking about why you can be a good leader, why you can lead, and really opening up why it's important to invest in new perspectives, in new leadership. And that, that part of it has gotten slightly easier from the first time I've ran to, I think, 2018, 2019, where we've seen a lot more women win. Because now the conversation starts, well, instead of starting, are you sure a woman can win for school board? It now starts, tell me who you are. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that you've made, we've, as a country, have made progress helps in those initial calls. But there's nothing like the very first call you make. <laughs> um, for me, I remember it was to my parents. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Um, <laughs> It is, right? Because they better say yes. That's right. That's right. I always tell people, start off with one where the stakes are low and they'll give blunt feedback and parents are a great option for that. (laughs) My second was my sisters who were much harsher critics with also some (laughs) advice on how to do it better. (laughs) That's great. That's great. And actually, kind of along those lines, what were some of the things in your own campaigns that you experienced that kind of suggested to you, oh, I have to be able to address this problem of people evaluating my candidacy different than they might if I were a man, if I were a more traditional candidate for this region, for this area? Do you have experiences that kind of come to mind where you said, okay, that's that's the reality here? And then, you know, how did you go about addressing that? Yeah, I quickly learned that I better be able to, in you know, less than a minute, explain my path to victory, mm. what the overall vision is, was, can be, because that was the number one key question always, which is, okay, I, I hear you, I think you're, I heard your message, or I read your bio, I think that's great, but how are you going to win? Mm. And, you know, even as we saw the presidential candidates, that key question was always top of mind. It's not always asked of every male candidate every single time, sure. but you have to be ready for it as a woman. And then the second question is, you're different. 
how are you going to do it being a woman or how are you going to do it being a woman of color that's never won there? So there's almost you have to have an answer on path to victory and then you have to have a second answer on path to victory. Again, that's indicative of what a lot of women face is you do answer that same question over and over again about credibility. Yeah. Of course, money matters. And being able to show that you can raise money, especially in those early days, is really a telltale sign that you're serious, that you have a network of people who believe in you. And unfortunately, in today's world, we still measure whether people believe in you by what kind of resources they give you um, as you move forward. That's an interesting point. Let's spend another minute on that because the question of just what metrics we're using to evaluate credibility or viability are themselves making a lot of assumptions. And one of them is what you just said, right? That the people who believe and support you are able and willing and likely to communicate that support with a financial contribution. Are there other ways that we should be thinking about, like what are other yardsticks that we should be considering? Either different ways to think about the money issue in particular, or even just other non-financial tools that we should be thinking about when we're trying to say, okay, is this a campaign that has got its act together, that's serious, that has good, strong, all things that we should want to ask of a campaign. But right now, we pretty myopically look at financial numbers. And even there, we kind of narrowly look at like cash on hand and dollars in the door. What are other ways that maybe we should be thinking about evaluating campaigns that might be a little more equitable? So I do think attending what's happening on the ground really matters, particularly in our state and local races. When you go to, you know, the cook-off that the campaign put together or some of the kickoffs in new places there where they've never had a campaign kickoff and all of a sudden, you know, you see 40 people who have never voted before, you know, packing the offices or a kickoff event. Those kinds of things really give you a tangibility of what's happening on the ground. They don't necessarily get reported um, and they don't necessarily get looked at. But in these smaller races, they end up becoming indicative of the networks you are building. And so I'm always curious when media goes to these events, whether they're asking the questions of, oh, do you always go to events? Is this new for you? Really understanding how the electorate is growing, particularly for candidates who are sort of the typical male candidate you're looking for. But when they're different, are they bringing that new body of voters? Um, And how are they doing it? What does the energy and excitement feel like? You know, I think there are other avenues now to take a look at it as well, which is in some polling firms do this, where they check what are the most important policies in the area? Mm -hmm. And then how does each candidate match that? You Mm -hmm. see that happen on the national level. You don't see that happen as much on the local level. And in fact, if we talked about that more, then you would see headlines where voters could say, wait a second, education is the most important thing. This person has a better platform than that person. But oftentimes, the first thing that gets reported are numbers. It's not necessarily policy, right? It's not necessarily where do you have your offices or where are your precinct captains located? Those are the kinds of things that we can shift. Money's easy because you can see it and you can look it up. But how do we do the kind of research in media to really be able to showcase what's really happening on the ground? And it's interesting because we've talked to in the past journalists who cover campaigns and, and put to them also the question of how they cover money. And it does seem as if there is this conflict in the media landscape getting sort of narrower and narrower and more resource limited. And you see fewer and fewer regional and local papers. But nevertheless, I think to your point, if you really want to evaluate those other elements of a campaign, having kind of another level of rigor when it comes to analyzing what's happening on the ground in regions, in localities is is certainly called for. 
Sure. And, you know, I think the other thing that's happened is what it means without being able to do the research is the reporting that is done is de facto you exist or you don't. Mm. And so all of a sudden now you don't have the research to show the full breadth, but because there are fewer papers now reporting, the fact that you reported numbers and said this person is viable or not viable, that has an echo sound, an Mm. echo chamber within the area. So I think it's even more important for media who is out there or for campaigns who are out there to try and find different ways of distributing different good news about one's campaign, like office openings or, you know, like policy priorities, really working on those kinds of things so that there's a different mechanism to getting people besides the one headline about who raised money and who didn't. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's go back, actually, to the beginning of the process, which is recruitment and the idea of throwing your hat in the ring to begin with. Well before you have any you know, office opening to announce or any numbers to announce, just even getting somebody to say, yes, I am going to throw my hat into this ring in general is often a lift, but I've heard it said that you don't have to ask a man that often to run for office. (laughs) It doesn't take a whole lot of persuasion. And often they'll come to that conclusion all on his own that he ought to be a congressperson (laughs) or the president. But that's not always the case for candidates of color and, and women. So I guess the first question is, has that been your experience, both in what it took you to decide to run? You shared a little bit of that before. And also what it when you think about recruiting a women around the country through Emerge and then through your travels, you know, what kinds of challenges do you face in helping women to see themselves in the roles that you see them in? So it really does start off by knowing at the outset, you're going to have to ask nine times or so. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because it's not just about asking, but there's something in the conversation that's really interesting. It goes from, is this really for me? to the conversation when they start, when women start to think of themselves doing it and they say, well, hold on a second. I don't have friends with a lot of resources. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. Or I don't have my life set up so that I can do that. Or it comes, would people vote for someone like me? And so you see women. So part of those, part of the nine or so times you have to ask, it's not actually the same conversation. It evolves over time, where at the beginning, it's, you know, the identification that you are a leader and you should step up and here's your opportunity and we need you, we need a voice like yours, to moving towards more of the logistics as the decision gets closer. And um, one of the big decisions, obviously, for a lot of people is, how do I do this financially? Can I have a job and do this? Can I have a family and do this? Those real logistical questions come to mind pretty early in the process for a lot of women who we convince that they should and can run for office, but the logistics become a really big issue right at the very beginning. Let's talk more about that because when people think about money in politics and when we talk about money in politics, our kind of go-to is the fundraising. We sometimes talk about the spending of money in politics and the regulation of money in politics. I'm not sure we talk ever, certainly not nearly enough, about the element of money in politics, which is like personal finance in politics. And can you shed a little bit more light on that? What are the kinds of considerations and how do you kind of coach and mentor candidates to think about them? So this this is one of the harder conversations that I think is not had enough more broadly, particularly for, well, really any family that goes through this, but particularly for anyone that is the lead you know, person in the family who's bringing in finances, people don't realize how much it takes to run for office. 
And so having a full-time job and running is incredibly hard. Either you have to be really, really good about figuring out the starting and end points, which a lot of folks can do. And there are a number of jobs that allow you to allow you that kind of flexibility and actually finding one of those places to where you can work and there is then time to be able to run. I think is part of making it possible in your household. The second thing is if you have kids, how are you going to manage childcare when you have evening events or when you have call time or, you know, everything you need to do just to get kids ready? Just as of recently, there weren't, you couldn't use campaign funds for childcare expenses. And so it was really a question of, is my mom nearby? Is my sister nearby? Mm. Um, how are we going to manage that piece? And then there's, um, you know, for a lot of wealthier people that run, they run and they either don't need to get paid or they can end their campaign with debt. Mm. that concept, and I remember when I ran the first time and we were going through the very end, our structure about what we were going to put on TV. And, you know, some of the consultants were like, oh yeah, but you, you know, you'll make that up later. And that concept just wasn't possible for me. I just right. couldn't do that to my family. I didn't have confidence either that I could just figure out how to pay this off someday. Right. I didn't grow up like that. And it just wasn't and for a lot of our candidates, that's just not possible. And so at the outset, I think it is really important. You don't have to run your campaign like that, nor should you be in the process where you're somehow you get into it and you're forced to. At the end of the day, you do have to make sure your family's going to be okay, that you're going to be okay. And so long as you keep that steady from the very start, then when it comes down to it, you can make the right decisions that are right for you and your family win or lose. But those things are hard because it is so personal. But there are things that you need to plan for at the very beginning. And that's why an organization like Emerge is so valuable in making sure people plan that out from the very beginning. So then along those lines, can you just tell us a little bit more about Emerge? For someone who maybe doesn't know all that Emerge does, just kind of the big picture, the goals, what someone who engages with it, one of your candidates, someone who's thinking about becoming a candidate, how do they engage with Emerge? What role does Emerge play in that process? So number one is we are always looking for fantastic candidates who want to run for office, who are already community leaders. One of the things about our program is that we do go through a pretty rigorous application process where we want to see folks who have put in some real effort in the electoral process, whether that's on a campaign, whether it's helping someone else, whether it's being part of commissions. We like to make sure that that there's some understanding of the political sphere as they enter our training program. And the reason is, is because we have one of the most comprehensive training programs across the country. So it's a 70-hour training program. Yeah. It's a cohort-based model. And people go through it together. Largely what happens in these organizations, is not only do you, in these trainings, not only do you learn the nuts and bolts of what it takes to run, but you become a sisterhood with everyone else that is in your cohort. And mm -hmm. in many times, they actually run together and they learn together and they're inspired by each other and they really become this amazing network. And it's not simply the network that you trained with for those 70 hours, but you quickly learn you're part of this broader network 
that has also come to this realization that we have a responsibility and that your voice matters as a part of this. And so Emerge has about 795 elected women across the country, five women in the U.S. Congress right now, Congresswoman Deb Holland, um, Lucy McBath, Abigail Spamberger, Xochimil Torres, Dr. Kim Walsh, Dr. Kim Schreier. So we just have a sub-segment. And if you just look at those five women, you know, first, one of the first Native American women, you know, the only female doctor, Lucy McBath, who had a hard race. Um, her, she lost her son to gun violence. Just taking a look at the women that we have in Congress is very similar to the kind of women we've seen across our network. We're very much about breaking barriers, not because for the sake of just breaking barriers, but because women are leaders no matter where they come from. And all we're doing is making sure that they also have a voice in the political sphere as well. And that's what's been so exciting about Emerge's program is because we're taking leaders who are already there and saying, how about our public service world? How about being a leader in the political sphere and shaping policies that have a scalable effect on the people that you want to serve? And so these kinds of questions that we've been talking about today, the questions of personal finance all the way to how you think about spending and fundraising and recruitment, these are are these kind of all the kinds of things in the areas that you all, as part of those 70 hours, are uncovering, turning over, answering questions. Is that the kind of work that's being done in those 70 hours? Absolutely. One of the things that we know about women is... Um, you know, women like to have a plan. (laughs) And we also know that's the key to success. So there's been a couple of research projects done on the 2018 election cycle. And the difference or the um, step function that was the key to success was candidates who had a plan. Mm. And it does. It covers everything from fundraising to communications to telling your story to the big political organizations to how you do data analysis and field when you're thinking about what door to knock on or how to make sure you're building out your database of fundraisers or precinct captains. And so because it's a methodical process and you go all the way through it, by the end of it, you really have a robust understanding of what it takes in a campaign. And you have a sense of if you wanted to run for X office, what is your win number? Where do you need to bring out the vote? And what's missing in that electorate that you really have a unique ability to really bring in for your election that perhaps maybe no other candidate could or has in the past. And those kinds of questions, working them early on um, with smart people, with a great sisterhood network, we have found has been why Emerge is so successful. We have a 46% win rate for first-time candidates, which is usually, first-time candidates usually win about 10% of the time. Emerge wins about 46% of the time. And so We know that that kind of training has made a real difference. And over the course of 15 years, you get better and better at it and you remain flexible because we also know no one campaign is like the other. No one year is like the other. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot today about the way in which everything from recruiting to training, curriculum, cohorts, all of these pieces even how we maybe cover campaigns can be adjusted, improved, built upon to make the process more equitable, especially the fundraising component of that. Is there anything else that it needs to change to kind of make this landscape a more equitable one for women who want to throw their hat in the ring, who want to run financially viable, serious campaigns? Are there any elements of the process other than those that we've covered that we all need to find a way to adjust if we really want to continue to see the kinds of breakthroughs we saw in 2018 just continue to persist? Yeah, I can't underscore enough 
the logistics of voting. So things like vote by mail, hmm. things like ensuring that it is easy to go vote, hmm. things like <laughs> when and how we have elections. You know, across the board, what we're finding is the more you open it up, the more you ensure people it's easy to vote, that we're reaching people, the more you're seeing that, the better government we're going to have because it's truly by the people. And I believe um, if we are truly by the people, you will, will see 50% of yeah. elected officials who are women. You will yeah. see more people of color represented, particularly in the neighborhoods or the areas or the states, so that it is a more reflective democracy. But in a world where there are these restrictions that just make it hard for working families, we're not going to quite get there. And so the logistics of voting, the logistics of how our elections work, of how people earn endorsements, all of those processes, the more we can open them up and the fairer those processes are, we'll begin to see a different kind of leadership in this country. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it, it's probably one of the most important topics when it comes to everything that we try and uncover, you know, with regards to money and politics is how to make it more of an open process, how to make it something that is accessible to more people. It seems to me that, you know, you don't really have that much of a democracy if you've got this major bottleneck starting, you know, well before the process even begins at the stage of fundraising. So, Thank you so much for sharing some insights on that. And then even more importantly, for all that you do with Emerge and elsewhere. Thank you. And I have to say, I really appreciate these kinds of podcasts, particularly because in a world where we need to increase trust in public institutions, having these kinds of open conversations about how the process works really helps educate and connect with folks who are out there wondering, um, how do you run for office and why should I run for office? So thank you for um, doing that part of it as well. If folks are interested in learning more about Emerge, they should check online to see all the wonderful resources they have available there. Even better, they may have a state affiliate where you live. And if so, you may be able to apply to join one of their cohorts. Mm-hmm.